Diversion Audio. Hi, I'm Natalie Emmanuel. From Ramsey in Fast and Furious to Masande in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence, and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men, until now. In 2022, my home country, the United Kingdom, went into a period of mourning for the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the longest ruling monarch in British history. But today, we wind back the clock to four and a half centuries earlier to talk about her namesake, daughter of King Henry VIII and a woman who would lead England into a golden age of power and influence. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. Bringing us the first Queen Elizabeth story, a daughter-father history team, Emily and John Jordan. Natalie, it is so great to be able to share stories about women who did remarkable things on the battlefield and in palace council chambers. So many of the women we talk about have done big things. Catherine of Russia was known as the Great. Manduhai resurrected part of the Mongol Empire. And Tamar launched Georgia into its golden age. But not many women get to name an entire era, do they? You're right. The Elizabethan era was England's golden age. The time of Shakespeare, Sir Francis Drake, writers, explorers, and prosperity. Queen Elizabeth was tied in many ways to my part of England. Essex, the county where I grew up, was the place where she gave one of the most famous speeches in English history. And the Earl of Essex was the most famous of her court favourites until he met a messy end. (laughs) (laughs) So, Dad, we've got a lot of ground to cover today with the first Queen Elizabeth. Why don't you get us started on her rise from orphan to war queen? I'd love to, Em. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, I think she makes the top tier of war leaders, not just because of her prowess as a war manager, but because the war she fought secured England's place as a cultural and economic force in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd probably rank her defeat of the Spanish Armada right up there with the Greek victory over Persia a thousand years earlier. Well, don't rank her yet. That's at the end of the episode. All right. Well, I mean, but the Elizabethan era was the time of Shakespeare and Marlowe and Sir Walter Raleigh and the beginning of the true British Empire. But I guess that's getting ahead of our story. So maybe we just rewind to her start. Yeah, and she was a princess, so that's a pretty good start. Yeah, it's a good start. But it's not always good to be a king or queen or princess. I mean, in the eyes of the law, she was a bastard. And I'm talking bastard in the legal sense, okay? Not not like yeah, a bastard. I get it. I've seen enough Game of Thrones to know a bastard okay. when I see Yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> exactly. They even battle there. Mm-hmm. Uh, her uh, Elizabeth's mom had been beheaded on the order of her father, 
And by the time she was 25, her father and her half-brother were dead, too. So the reigning queen, when Elizabeth is 25, was her half-sister, who would be known to history as Bloody Mary. And Bloody Mary had Elizabeth locked up in the dreaded Tower of London during an investigation into whether she was treasonous or had committed uh, religious heresy. Yeah, and, and that's a less good start, I guess. Uh, we look at from our other episodes that when there's a succession crisis, uh, siblings fight. They do not get along. I mean, we see Cleopatra, her brother mm-hmm. Ptolemy, and in some sense Arsinoe, her sister. We see Jinga's mm-hmm. uh, baby brother uh, who killed her baby and sterilized her and her sisters. And it's just as bad among brothers. I mean, the Ottoman Turks always end up killing each other off. Yeah, that's that's sort of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. might be because a brother on the throne is a more obvious threat to a young king or prince than a woman Mm -hmm. because of course women were often excluded from power and so i think sometimes they kind of fly under the assassination radar yeah sometimes uh but back to elizabeth she outlasts her half-sister and takes the throne of england wales and ireland in 1558 What was the situation like when she first began her reign? Well, Western Europe was divided into two loose camps. The Catholic faction included Spain and Portugal and France, and the Protestant and Lutheran factions were based in Scotland, Germany, and the Netherlands. But, you know, you can't ever really broad brush someone by their religion or a country by their religion. Catholic France dominated Protestant Scotland and the Catholic Spanish owned Protestant Netherlands. So Europe was kind of a messy map at the time. Yeah. And and when there's competition like this, you have to start looking for alliances, Mm -hmm. kind of like on Survivor, one of our favorite shows. Where does England fall in all of this? England kind of swung both ways. England was Catholic under Henry VIII, and then the Church of England under Henry VIII, and then Catholic under Bloody Mary, and then back to the Church of England under Elizabeth. So when Elizabeth became queen, every kingdom in Europe, even uh, Russia, was sending her marriage proposals. Yeah, sounds like England was kind of Catholic fluid at the time. Yeah. But giving her last rose to a Catholic king would anger the English, while marrying a Protestant would mean uh, that she's making an enemy of the entire Catholic world. And there's a lot of Catholics in England. So she kind of had to keep swiping left on every king and prince in order to stay neutral. It was about the safest move. Yeah, everyone from King Philip of Spain to Ivan the Terrible in Russia, she basically would just say, let me get back to you on that. So that enabled her to have a little bit of a breathing space. While she was consolidating her rule, she was a very hard worker. Virtually every war queen that we talk about in the book and on our podcast Mm -hmm. had that quality in common, just a ferocious work ethic. She played as hard as she worked. She loved to uh, have dance parties. She did a lot of reading in one of the six languages that she had command of. She basically was, you know, someone who was a work hard, play hard type. That reminds me of Cleopatra, actually. She spoke lots of languages, but was also a party girl and a hard worker, both definitely type A's. But Elizabeth wanted to avoid wars with either faction, right? Yeah, when she came to power, one of the things she wanted to do was keep England out of wars. She wasn't a pacifist. But uh, she wanted to avoid foreign wars. And one of the reasons was because when she was young, her father, King Henry VIII, 
had waged a bunch of expensive wars against France. The wars didn't win him much French real estate, but they cost the English kingdom a lot of men and a lot of money, especially a lot of money. So King Henry ended up having to sell church lands he had seized from the Catholic Church. He took out loans for the crown. He diluted the crown's silver coins with lead and other base metals. Uh, he raised taxes to their highest rates in a couple of centuries. And when you do things like uh, debase your currency, uh, you put more coins out there. What's that going to create in your economy? Inflation. Exactly. Uh, so that set off this huge round of inflation, and it hobbled England's economy. And Elizabeth looked at that, and she grew up in those hard economic times and did not want to repeat her father's mistakes. Yeah, and, and while we're focusing on war queens, we also have to recognize the importance of knowing when not to go to war. Mm -hmm. uh, it's It's equally, if not more, important. But there was still a lot of pushing and shoving going on on her borders, and Elizabeth could not stay out of war forever. She couldn't. Scotland sits on her northern border, and it was theoretically a Protestant country, but it was led by Elizabeth's Catholic cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, Mary was the Queen of France and the Queen of Scotland, and she also had a claim to the English throne nearly as good as Elizabeth's claim. Now, Mary made a lot of bad life decisions. She was a real threat to Elizabeth as well. So when an army of French soldiers showed up near Edinburgh, the Scottish capital, Elizabeth began a covert war by paying Protestant rebels in Scotland to fight against Mary and the French. Well, simply paying rebels to fight didn't work. So Elizabeth took it to the next step. She sent a fleet of warships to blockade Edinburgh. But again, she didn't want to be too closely involved in this war. So she didn't let the warships fly the English flag. They had to fly a private flag so she could deny that they worked for her. Yeah, plausible deniability. Yeah, exactly. And that didn't work. So then she ordered a force of 4,000 men to attack the French base at a town called Leith. But then she called off the attack at the last minute. Yeah, as a queen, that's kind of her woman's prerogative to it be is. able to do. It is, but changing her mind drove her generals and her advisors nuts because they have to plan things with the confidence that the, they, their plans won't get janked around at the last minute by the queen. So the queen's military advisors thought that the queen canceling the attack on Leith in Scotland was exhibit A to why women should not be running wars. As a national leader, she couldn't just look at one battle. She had to kind of look at the bigger picture here going on, uh, which is that France is a superpower at the time, and there were a lot of risks to starting a war with France. Yeah, she didn't want to get into a, a deeper quagmire or a bigger war that uh, would spin out of control. The other reason was that Elizabeth knew that wars tend to make heroes out of military leaders. I mean, in the United States, you look at presidents like Ulysses Grant, George Washington, Dwight Eisenhower. They were military leaders, and they became the political leaders. Well, a war with Scotland or France or anyone else would create new heroes at home, and those heroes would wield a lot of influence with Parliament and the people. 
And of course, Elizabeth could not be one of those heroes because she was a woman. She couldn't mm -hmm. lead an army. So men would get the glory of the battlefield combat, and that could potentially be a threat to her. Yeah. Well, she didn't want this war, but there's French camping out on her border still. Yeah, she couldn't let that last forever. So in the spring of 1560, though, the picture changed. Mary's husband, the King of France, died. The Medici family, which was a rival faction, uh, rose up against the ruling faction, the House of Guise. And Elizabeth calculated that the French king was so enmeshed in things going on in Paris that he could not afford to send an army to Scotland when he was putting down all this unrest in, in the French capital. So Elizabeth ordered an assault and a naval blockade. Now, the local general botched the assault, but the blockade worked, and Elizabeth was able to starve out the French soldiers, and they agreed to leave Scotland, and they never returned. So I'll be keeping our track record for Elizabeth, because she mm -hmm. has a pretty complicated story. So she is 1-0. What next? All right, so in France, a Protestant faction, and they were called the Huguenots, they revolted against the ruling Catholics. So English mercenaries and English gold began turning up in France on the Huguenot side, and Elizabeth was waging this proxy war again. She didn't want to get into a direct war with France, but this was kind of becoming her calling card, an indirect war mm. where she was funding the Huguenots. And mercenaries aren't really a great way to win the hearts and minds of all the people at home. Uh, what happened when word got out that the English were fighting against the French? Yeah, so there were these English soldiers, again, with English gold, um, fighting on the side of the Huguenots. And once, once that word got out, the average Joe Frenchman was livid about it. I mean, the French were French first and Protestant second. Nationalism mm. always has a place in a population. And when the French, even the moderate French Protestants heard, that uh, there were guys with English accents in places like Rouen and Calais. They united to expel Elizabeth's proxy soldiers. They kicked them off the continent. They made them sail back to England. And to add insult to injury, the uh, soldiers who came back with their tail between their legs to England uh, brought a plague back that killed 20,000 Londoners. Oh, gross. So Elizabeth is now one in one, but one in one still makes the playoffs. Yeah, you still get you still get the playoffs at one in one. But the defeat in France cost her a huge amount of money. It was two mm -hmm. times her national income. So she had to cut military spending. She slashed her household budget for servants and jewelry and gifts. All the, the little, you know... Trinkets, All the fun. trinkets, the bling, yeah, the, the goodie bags they had to stop. Uh, the war also hurt the English export markets for things like wool. So the kingdom's economy began taking a hit as a result of Elizabeth's proxy war. Now that she was on the throne of England, Ireland and Wales, Elizabeth faced a hostile coalition of forces in Europe. When we come back from the break, we'll hear more about the wars and intrigue she navigated. Back with Elizabeth. This is the 1560s now. She's won a war in Scotland and lost a war in France. So she begins a war at sea now with Spain's colonies in the New World. 
Sea captains like Sir Francis Drake and John Hopkins became known for more than just their tights and ruffled collars at the time. They were the original pirates of the Caribbean, and they were allowed to roam the seas and attack Spanish treasure ships as licensed private warships. They had been given a document from the crown that said, you can go ahead and attack the Spanish ships, and they made bank for England's treasury. That was part of Elizabeth's foreign policy, using these private soldiers and private sailors to accomplish what she wanted. Well, what did she want? That was basically to keep the big Catholic kingdoms off balance. But she could not afford any open conflict with one of the biggest superpowers of the day, the Spanish Empire. So she was using Raleigh and Drake and Johnny Depp and all the rest of them to give her what you called earlier plausible deniability. So the pirate ships and Captain Jack Sparrow, as you mentioned, fought with Elizabeth's permission. And she was starting another covert war to weaken Spain and keep its nose out of England's business. You can't keep something like that a secret forever, though. No, I mean, you try to keep it covered up. You get plausible deniability, but... You know, plausible is not the same thing as convincing deniability. Mm -hmm. Spain had this huge army in the Netherlands, meanwhile. And as the Spanish grew furious over England's undeclared war at sea, Elizabeth knew that she had to prepare for a possible invasion by this big Spanish army that was sitting in the Netherlands. So Elizabeth built up the fleet, and she tried to keep her head down for about a decade, you know, kind of during the 1570s. Do you think that helped? Uh, Not really. The uh, Pope declared Elizabeth to be a heretic in 1570, and he absolved any Catholic of sins they might commit while overthrowing Elizabeth. So this became basically a papal license to kill, you know, 500 years before James Bond. And Mary was run out of Scotland in 1567, and the throne goes to her son, uh, James VI. And that should have made her less of a threat to Elizabeth. Yes and no. So Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, is forced out of Edinburgh, and she flees south into England. And Elizabeth had her cousin Mary taken into protective custody. So Mary was uh, put up at a castle. She had servants. She had good food. But the operative word here is custody. Elizabeth could not let Mary go running around. There were a lot of Catholic supporters in England who wanted to see Mary on the throne instead of Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth's problem was that Queen Mary was too famous and too important to get rid of, but she was also too dangerous to set free. Well, Mary's son at the time was Scotland's King James, and he probably wasn't very thrilled seeing his mom locked up. He wasn't. But he also knew that mom was a little reckless. She was kind of a wild child, and she'd made some bad life choices. Mm. So he had to work with the Protestant nobles in his own country anyway. And mom had been kind of an embarrassment to everyone. Oh, okay. So he's like, maybe you could keep her there for a little bit. Well, he figures that if he plays nice with England, and if Elizabeth dies and has no children, then he would have a pretty good claim to the English throne. I mean, that's not a bad place to be as long as he didn't get in England's face. Elizabeth wanted to keep her head down now, but Mm -hmm. she really can't let the Spanish get too comfortable. The Spanish Netherlands was Protestant, and the Dutch were in a revolt against their Spanish overlords. That seemed like the perfect place for another one of Elizabeth's proxy wars. Yeah, it was a lot like the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union in the late 20th century. They fought by proxy. 
Elizabeth did not want to mix it up with Spain directly, so she just funded the Dutch rebels. Uh, but eventually she had to send an army under her court favorite, the Earl of Leicester. Uh, and that army was there to tie down the Spanish in the Netherlands so the Spanish wouldn't be able to get up and invade England. And that mostly worked. Yeah, mostly. The Spanish Empire at the time, in the 1570s, was very thinly stretched. King Philip of Spain had to fight the Ottoman Turks in the east. He had to protect his treasure ships at sea toward the New World. He had to put down revolts in places like the Netherlands. So he really wasn't able to concentrate his forces against England for the moment, you know, during the 1570s, early 1580s, I guess. Okay, so... Keeping track, uh, we are three and one for Elizabeth. Mm -hmm, basically. Uh, yeah. But the sea was really where she excelled. Uh, England's protection traditionally centered on having a large navy, which we know eventually Margaret Thatcher kind of does away with. But mm -hmm. um, do you think Elizabeth set out to make England the greatest naval power in the world? That's a good question. I mean, she wasn't thinking about the long term in that way at the time. But she did have some long-term planning, and she and her ministers were able to capitalize on new technology. Around this time, there were improvements in metallurgy that allowed her ships to carry heavier cannon that could hit from a longer range. So instead of building bigger and bigger ships, like King Philip's Spanish galleons, the Queen's Admiralty built these smaller, faster ships that carried few guns, but they could hit harder. Uh, Queen Elizabeth's government also did a good job of budgeting, and uh, they even started a national lottery to help pay for the fleet. So this was a lottery that I think you get like 5,000 pounds was the grand prize. But if you bought the ticket, then it gave you immunity from prosecution for misdemeanors. Well, Elizabeth, you know, she was one of those cost-conscious rulers um, and so, uh, you know, until Margaret Thatcher came along, she was she was very tight with her budget, but uh, she did spend some money on the the Navy. Yeah. Um, how hands on was Elizabeth in terms of military matters? Well, on things like cost and whether to start a war or end a war, she held absolute power. And those are the kinds of things you expect national leaders to do. And she would oftentimes write to her generals like Lester. Uh, haranguing them for spending too much or not getting enough done. Uh, but when an army was in a field or a Navy weighed anchor and put out to sea, Elizabeth could do basically nothing. And that was especially true with the Navy. Once those ships got out of uh, the English coastline, she had to learn to trust her naval commanders. And her years of waging a war at sea with Spain over in the New World with guys like, uh, you know, Johnny Depp and, and uh, Sir Francis Drake, <laughs> Uh, raiding Spanish ships, that built up a generation of sea captains who became independent and they were experts at fighting on the water without having to go back to London for every order. And that segues us into King Philip's plan to eliminate Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. Mary was uh, basically Elizabeth's prisoner at this point. Uh, did she really try to overthrow her cousin, though? Well, there was a group of radical young Catholics who wanted to get rid of Elizabeth, and they smuggled letters to uh, Mary in code telling her what they were going to do. And Mary basically encouraged them. And her reply letter was intercepted by one of Elizabeth's spy masters, and he decoded the letter, and it deeply implicated Mary. 
Hmm. So a trial found the conspirators guilty. Her conspirators were basically executed a la Braveheart, you know, with the whole uh, drawing and quartering and disemboweling and all that nasty stuff. And Elizabeth, with some reluctance, signed Mary's death warrant in February of 1587. So three badly aimed chops of an axe that separates Mary's head from her shoulders. And that's the end of Mary's story. And that leaves us the now headless Mary's son, uh, Scotland's King James. Yes. But remember, King James and Elizabeth had sort of a quiet understanding. If James played nicely with England and Elizabeth had no children, he would probably become England's next king. And besides, you know, if he were to go back to war with England, that wasn't going to put Mary's head back on her shoulders. Yeah. So he basically made some pro forma protests through diplomatic channels and he kept on to his side of the border. Yeah, kind of a sunk cost. Yeah. So Scotland is playing nice, but other Catholic monarchs are freaking out. Right. So Spain's King Philip, who is now the King of Portugal as well, built this massive invasion fleet, and he assembled it at Cadiz in southern Spain. And he would have invaded England in 1587, but Sir Francis Drake took a squadron of warships down to Cadiz and he jumped the Spanish while they were still at anchor. He destroyed 37 enemy warships and he burnt an entire merchant fleet to the ground. So Philip had to spend the next year building another fleet. (laughs) And Elizabeth had some really great spies and she knew kind of the general plan. Uh, Philip was going to send his war fleet north from Lisbon through the English Channel and into the ports of the Netherlands, where they had a huge army waiting. The war fleet would protect the invasion barges as they crossed the English Channel and beached on English soil. Yeah, Elizabeth was really into spies at the time. And one of the things that you you see when you look through the the proceedings of her council, and there are a lot of these records that that still exist. They're even online, some of them. Uh, They got so much information, it was almost hard to process how much they were getting about what the Spanish were doing. So Elizabeth knew what was going on. She pulls her ships back to the English Channel, and she sent out four armies to different parts of southern England to repel an invasion when it happened. She gave command of one of her fleets to Francis Drake, and she gave command of the other fleet to a guy named Admiral Howard, and she gave them orders to combine when they found the main Spanish navy. So the invasion is launched. By now it's May of 1588, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the D-Day of its time. They have this massive fleet of 130 warships uh, ready to strike, and those included 28 first-rate battleships covered in guns. Um, So, Dad, talk about the English fleet. Now, the English fleet was about the same size as the Spanish Armada, except that its ships were smaller, and they carried more guns, and they hardly had any soldiers. They were counting on their heavy guns to beat the large body of soldiers. The Spanish loved to, you know, basically put a bunch of soldiers up and try to board you and overrun you kind of in military style. And the British were going to have nothing to do with it. The English were going to hold off and just sort of pepper your ships with cannonballs until you sank. And neither Philip nor Elizabeth were actually physically present for this battle. Right. Uh, Elizabeth's back in London and Philip was in Madrid. National leaders often have to manage these battles from hundreds of miles away, which is why it's so important that Elizabeth worked really hard to keep herself informed. Um, How did the two leaders manage? 
Well, the differences between the two leaders really played out in the months before the actual battle. One of a national leader's top jobs is to select the senior commander. So Elizabeth selected experienced sea captains, and she let them do their jobs without interfering. They made their own tactical plans, and they decided when and how they would attack, and if they saw an opportunity, they would take it. Now, on the other hand, King Philip appointed a guy named uh, Medina Sidonia, and he was the head admiral, and his main qualification was he would do whatever Madrid told him to do without question. He followed his orders to the letter, and so this was the different leadership style. Uh, Elizabeth, as a woman, was not a commander. Uh, She wasn't trained in military arts, so she had to rely on the professionals, Mm -hmm. whereas Philip wanted to maintain more tight control over his head admiral. Okay, so the battle turns into a horrific event for the Spanish. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have to run the entire length of the English Channel, and Drake and Howard are just biting off pieces of their fleet. The job of the Spanish Navy, the warships, was to get to the Belgian coast where they would meet that army that had been in the Spanish Netherlands and escort it across the channel. So the Spaniards moved up. Uh, they're getting harassed by Howard and Drake as they're crossing the, uh, going through the English Channel. They pull into a port near Dunkirk on the Belgian side, and the English attack them during the night. The next day, they go mano a mano with each other. The English sink or disable several battleships, and the Spanish fleet retreated up the east coast of England, kind of toward the North Sea, where storms wrecked two-thirds of the, the Spanish fleet. Meanwhile, the Queen was manning the land defenses. She wanted to be with her troops, so she set out for the army's camp at Tilbury, a little place about 30 miles down the Thames River from London, uh, kind of on the other side of the uh, of Essex County from uh, opposite side of Natalie's home. And there Queen Elizabeth spoke to her soldiers, giving them one of the most famous speeches in the English language. And she was decked out and dressed for success. Totally. Uh, she had a white horse, an armored breastplate, mm-hmm. plumed helmet, a marshal's baton, and she really looked the part of a war queen. And her speech would go on to be recreated by Kate Blanchett, uh, Helen Mirren, and a lot of others. Yeah. So, Em, do you want to read the highlights from it? Sure. Uh, she was staring out over a crowd of pikemen and cavalry, and she exclaimed to her soldiers, I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I mean, that was one of those incredibly moving moments in English history. It really was a cinematic moment. Mm-hmm. It's one of those great scenes that you you wish you were there to watch. Um, the thing is, by the time she had given that speech, though, the battle had already been won miles and miles yeah. away. And her kingdom was safe. But no one knew that at the time. Yeah, in the Hollywood version, her speech would have been the benediction to her war years and the opening of a golden age of Shakespeare, Bacon, and other writers and explorers. Uh, Is that how it worked out? Not really. 
I mean, Spain's empire was so huge that even the defeat of the Spanish Armada was not a crippling body blow. It was just a major setback. Mm -hmm. And King Philip learned from his mistakes. So Spain rebuilt its war fleet with ships that were a lot like the English ships. And the war would go back and forth for another 15 years or so. Well, I think it's a good time for a break. Natalie? Of all Queen Elizabeth's enemies, the Spanish Empire was the most powerful and the most determined. But it wasn't the only threat Elizabeth faced. John and Emily will have more about Elizabeth's wars when we return from the break. At this point, Elizabeth is four and one. Uh, we're still keeping score. Elizabeth's four and one, and then we get to Ireland. Elizabeth was the queen of England, Wales, and Ireland, but the Irish didn't like that last part, and they were constantly in rebellion. Ireland would become the barrel of fish hooks that any sovereign who sticks his hand in is going to get poked. Elizabeth sent several armies into Ireland over the next several years, and she burned through an Elon Musk-style fortune to keep the Irish under crown rule. The main army was sent by one of her court favorites, the Earl of Essex, mm -hmm. another, you know, maybe lover, maybe not. But Essex botched it, and he came back home and disgraced. He tried to hatch a plot against Elizabeth's government, but he botched that one too, and he lost his head for his troubles. Yeah, so maybe we'll call it a soft five and one or soft four and two. Yeah, she's still Queen of Ireland, but that was kind of a bloody mess. One thing we do learn from Elizabeth's war leadership is that you have to trust your professionals. A command dress cannot be everywhere all at once, and you have to know what lieutenants uh, you can leave the decision making to. You have to make sure they do their jobs properly and then not interfere. With that in mind, how would you rank her as a war queen? I think I'd give her generally high marks with some caveats here. Uh, first, she gets high marks for trusting her professionals. She gets high marks for victory. I mean, mm -hmm. winning obviously is important. She gets high marks for managing her resources pretty well. Where I think I'd have to qualify her legacy is, remember, when she came into power, she didn't want to get in any of these wars. Mm -hmm. She knew that they would cost the country a lot of money, and she had seen the legacy of King Henry VIII's wars, and she didn't want to repeat them. Mm -hmm. But not only did she repeat Henry VIII's legacy of getting into wars, she got into wars all over the place. Yeah. And so I think what that tells us is sometimes a leader comes in with ideals and the reality of the job that they're holding means that they can't accomplish all those ideals, those goals they started off setting out for themselves. Yeah. So give us a, a number, a rating. I think I'd put her at a 8.7. All right. Well, Natalie, what do you think? Even among war queens, Elizabeth I stands out. During her 44 years on the throne, she did a remarkable job navigating war and peace and bringing my home country a welcome period of stability. But she also proves that what a leader tries to do when she begins her reign may not always turn out the way she had hoped. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war.
if you have any questions for us about War Queens, if you're curious about something you heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com. Again, that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com. We'll try to answer your questions on a future episode. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at War Queens Podcast. War Queens is a production of Diversion Audio. Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez, editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Diversion Audio.